Hello and welcome to the Private Practice Made Perfect podcast. I'm Cathy Love. I started life as an OT, had a, an amazing, crazy private practice which I sold. And what I do now is help allied health business owners create a business that serves them, the time, the money, the joy that they absolutely deserve. And this is where my idea for the podcast started. What I want to do is to capture how hard allied health business owners in Australia work to achieve their dreams, to support their teams, to create amazing outcomes for their clients. So sit back, beverage of joys, drive safely, walk carefully, however you're listening in, and I hope you absolutely enjoy. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Ed Johnson. Good to see you. Good to see you too, Kathy. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. We've done a quick calculation that it's hmm, four or five years since we saw each other, so we're on the catch-up as well. Too long, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think we're in Melbourne for a bit of a catch-up one time. Uh, Ed is a speech pathologist by training and has done a lot of extra um, post-grad work, but his current role at the moment is with Sarah um, on the board and in the executive crew. Um, How about you kind of just explain a little bit about your allied health profession life first, and then I really Mm. want to get into the good stuff about Sarah. Yeah, sure. Um, So I'm a speech pathologist and have been a speech pathologist for going on about 12 years now. And I, I sort of fell into speech pathology because I studied anthropology and linguistics and and love doing that in an arts degree, but it, it didn't sort of get me a, a professional role as such. So I decided to do a master's in speech and um, sort of here we are. Um, from from the, the first job I had um, or from the first time I studied, really, all I wanted to do was work in a rural area. Um, I grew up in the Blue Mountains, which is sort of, you know, in between city and country. <laughs> Bit and, of both. Um, yeah, and a lot of the time when you live in the mountains, you either sort of move to Sydney or you move out west when you finish school or finish uni. So I decided to move out west and, and I had a lot of family in the central west um, uh, in the past. So I sort of had a bit of a family connection there and played a lot of sport out there when I was when I was younger. So I I moved out there and sort of started going further and further west as my career progressed and and and, and really loved it. But um, very early on in my career, I, I, I found that um, the services that we were offering just weren't enough. There wasn't enough allied health and there wasn't enough time that we could spend with families to give them what they really needed. Uh, and... A lot of the time it, it depended on someone's postcode, whether or not they would get the, the support they needed. And I just didn't feel like that was good enough, um, you know, and I felt like when we were seeing people, it was more the choice of the clinician about what we're actually working on or, you know, which person got seen. And I just didn't think that was fair. So um, that sent me down the road of, of researching what do families really want in the bush? Um, and so I did a PhD and looking at what they want um, and, and trying to figure out how how we can help people um, to to live their best life through you know through 
providing allied health supports. And where they live. Exactly, exactly. Um, I don't want people to have to move house, to move home, to to move to a different city, to move to a... Um, to move away from where they where they live and where they love um, just because there's no services there. And we know that's and we know that's happening all the time. Um, we we see it in the literature even. Um, and, and we know people um, uh, just can't uh, can't deal with the lack of services. so they they just mm. pull up stumps and 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 head off to the city and and I don't think that's that's the best way for people to to be able to live their best life and, and to stay with their family and friends in, in the communities that mm. that they love and that they've grown up in. And want to stay in ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. I was blown away with the statistic you sent through um, about the percentage of Australians living rural and remote. Um, 28% of Australians live rural and remote, about 7 million people. Mind blown. And I said before I hit record, I thought it would have been 10 or 15. So my sheer metro ignorance, shouting loud. Yeah, um, it was was much larger sort of in the 50s, 60s. Yeah, it would have been. I think it was something like 60% back um, when um, my parents were growing up. And... Everyone had um, cousins or um, family or, or grandparents, whoever, in, in the bush, and they knew about, um, you know, what it meant to be in primary production, what it meant to live in a small town, um, the realities of, of living in rural and remote Australia. And I think that brought a lot more uh, awareness to um people living in metro areas and this is sort of coming from from my parents and stories my parents have told me um sort of dad growing up in the bush um and i think we've lost a lot of that these days we do we, we have a disconnect between city and country and we um i saw this recently i went to the the ndis job summit um, in canberra and we're talking about how do we how do we get the ndis fixed so that it's you know we're 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 employing more people with disabilities um uh by using the scheme and both and and in the scheme um but you know whenever i brought up rural and remote um everyone's just sort of stood back and there there was sort of this look on people's faces like oh okay you know that's sure you know we don't want to get involved because we don't know about it it wasn't like um, people wanted to exclude rural and remote, but they just yeah. didn't understand or just thought, oh, I don't know enough about that to to have an opinion or to to want to engage in the conversation. So I think um, perhaps we're not doing a very good job of, of PR for um, rural and remote and and how we can engage. And we, we saw during the pandemic that people... I was just about to say it became they, even differently <laughs> obvious, didn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, buy from the bush stuff. Um, you know, there is a great connection there and, you know, um, we need city and we need country and and I think um, perhaps it's just more of a conversation that needs to happen between city and country about... Um, the, the good things that we can offer. Mm, mm. So nowadays uh, you uh, are working um, with Sarah on the board and in the executive team. 
Before we talk about your role there, I just want to give you an open mic and as much time as you want to tell us about what Sarah does. I'm a huge fan um, and have followed their work for years, but I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people listening weren't across this stuff yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, So we, I call it Sarah. Some people call it Sarah. But there are two schools of thought. It's sort of like two two um, fighting factions. Um, but just just so you know, that's so um, it's, a, it's a constant discussion within within the membership. Um, so yeah, we, it's it stands for Services for Australian Rural and Remote Allied Health, and we we exist to. Um, advocate for for the health and well-being and, and sustainability of people in rural and remote uh, areas of Australia and through the support that allied health uh, gives and we we do that uh, primarily at the moment through uh, developing the rural generalist program so some people may have heard about the medical rural generalist program uh, where um, doctors are trained in in a broad variety of skills to be able to support people with diverse needs in a in a small community, uh, in a rural or a remote area, and it's a similar concept with allied health. So, um, and I should clarify that the generalist nature of of a clinician is is not sort of a generalist allied health professional because that's something that some people misinterpret. Uh, it's it's a generalist within your discipline. So me being a speech pathologist, if I were uh, to practice as a rural generalist, which I have done, um, then I would perhaps be um, in the morning going to an aged care facility, in the afternoon going to a preschool, um, helping out at the local hospital, um, doing NDIS work, um, being able to work across a range of different areas, being able to... Uh, collaborate and build partnerships across those those services um, and and the rural generalist program helps someone to be able to set up um, a, a job like that in their clinic or, or to help an NGO, NGO plan service delivery models which will help to employ people like that or, or attract new people who want to train as rural generalists and um the the strength of that is that you don't get this situation where say um a community gets really excited that um you know they've they've never had a physio in town they employ a physio at the local hospital and then everyone gets really excited um because you know granny down at the aged care facility really needs um help getting mobile you know kids down at the preschool um, there, there's some kids with disabilities there who, who want to learn how to ride a bike and everyone thinks, great, the physios in town, they can help with all this, but they work at the hospital, so they're only allowed to work at the hospital and only allowed to work with inpatients. Um, but when we set up rural generalist roles um, in communities, then we can actually work across all of those contexts uh, and set up clinical governance structures within those um, NGOs or within those clinics, which support um, really good um, evidence-based practice across a range of different clinical areas. Um, so I'm I'm really excited about the Rural Generalist Program. I think it's it's um, it's 
uh, about nine million bucks that we've got from the Department of Health over over three years to to implement this program, uh, and it also includes uh, developing uh, some allied health assistant positions. So the listeners would appreciate that there's just not enough allied health professionals, and in a small town, you can't always have you know in a town of three thousand, you're not always going to have a physiotherapist, an occupational therapist, a psychologist, a speech pathologist, a podiatrist, a dietitian. Um, but if you have an allied health assistant and if you have people, uh, clinicians who, who can be there sometimes, supporting, training, um, delegating to the allied health assistant, then you can build sustainable services in smaller communities uh, you can reduce people's need to leave home um, to get support, um, either temporarily or permanently. You can save money on travel. You can save money uh, on accommodation. Um, so uh, broadly speaking, that's that's what the Rural Generalist Program is, and that's that's a core piece of work that, that Sarah does. Um, we also work uh, on advocating for um, better... Um, workforce training pipelines, uh, better workforce distribution uh, ac- across Australia, and we do that through lobbying um, and and regular meetings with people like the the Chief Allied Health Officer. Um, fantastic that we have a Chief Allied Health Officer now, um, and the National Rural Health Commissioner, uh, and and as as well as sort of working with the Department of Health and Department of Social Services very closely so um, we we regularly sort of meet with with these people to to push forward the agenda of of our members um, who are the people who are seeing this stuff happening on the ground and who are solving problems on the ground as well if uh, listeners are really curious about the rural generalist program they can get in touch with you but then mm. what does that collaboration and that program look like from their yeah. point of view yeah, so um, there, the the training involves um, a postgrad certificate at level two, um, and so there's a couple of different levels of of the program. Um, I'm not as familiar with level one because I don't um, work work as closely with level one. Uh, but I know that level two is postgrad cert, where you will study through James Cook University um, to get um, skills in rural generalism. Uh, we also work with the service that um, sort of holds holds that money for the rural generalist position. So the, the money is held through whatever company it is. It might be a private practice. It might be an NGO. Mm. Um, so they. Um, they work with us to develop a service delivery model that's going to work for that particular rural generalist. Uh, so wh- what are the service needs in that particular community? Um, what do they need to, to do to prioritise their caseload? What do they need to do in terms of upskilling that generalist in a particular area? Is there more aged care stuff? Uh, is there more disability stuff? Is there more community health stuff? Um, and so we work through sort of clinical governance uh, elements with uh, with the provider, with the company, uh, and and we and then the rural generalist trainee um, will will access regular training um, through that university course. Mm. 
Are there graduates of the uni course out and about working already? Yeah, there are. Um, there's, gosh, I, I couldn't give you numbers, um, but there are. Um, there, there are people. We, we know that the the course has been run um, outside of Sarah for a while now, and it's in state health services. It started in Queensland, um, and 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 has seen um, pretty good levels of success in in sort of. Um, public contexts we're still testing it out in sort of private and ngo areas to to see how the model works um it's it's really um i think one of the challenges with with a training program like this is in say sort of an ndis context um you're looking at billable hours so you need to make time for that person to train to get the skills to be able to support people really well uh, with really good evidence-based therapies. But a lot of the time um, uh, a company might have a, a sort of a short-term focus and, and they can't necessarily see the benefit of um, investing in that person in the short term uh, to be able to then get some really good services, um, get better sort of job retention down the track um, through having trained them as a rural generalist. Uh, and we know that rural generalist training can help retain um, staff, which is which is really important in rural and remote areas. Even if you've got someone for a couple of years in a remote area, you're doing well. Mm. Um, so that that's the that's the big challenge that we face is sort of that um, how can we how can we make that more palatable that that we are providing this training? How can we make that uh, focus a little bit more long term for the um, the providers and, and um, the NGOs, the private practices? I guess it's building in sustainability, isn't it? Because you've got a sizable in a sizable investment and strong partnerships with JCU and the like, and mm. you're wanting to see this stay in the marketplace and be something people look forward to being able to train up in and live and work in their environments and support their communities. Mm. Yeah, and and really pragmatically speaking, we want to um, show that it works at scale and we want to then show that to the department so that they continue to fund that uh, more widely across Australia because that's what's going to keep more people in the bush working yeah. and supporting rural communities. Mm. Can you explain to us a little bit more about the AHAs and the training and supports that are available for those those wonderful people? This is a cohort in um, the industry that I'm most excited and curious about. It's just such an interesting career pathway for people and it's feeling um, a little loose currently, but I understand yeah. that it's being strengthened strengthened up. Yeah, so we we provide either Cert 3 or Cert 4 training through the Rural Generalist Program. Um, that um, I, I'm not sure about the exact nature of the training that they have, um, but that's an, an accredited TAFE course that they do um, mm. at a certificate level. Uh, I know there's been uh, a lot of concern about sort of clinical safety, clinical governance with allied health assistants. Um, 
I don't see the big issue, to be honest. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think I think there's potentially some clinical contexts in which mm. there's um, warranted caution, but in in many yeah. contexts, there, you know, we're we're doing stuff that that couldn't possibly do any harm if you got a little bit wrong you show them the wrong picture card um that's not the end of the world um but i think that that in talking about this i usually like to talk about um how um how we work with families because clinicians work with families all the time you know if you're working with kids you're working with families you're working with parents and you're training parents in therapy and you trust classroom assistants and anybody else exactly running a business isn't just about setting up shop and becoming complacent it's about showing up for ourselves and our clients with a commitment to continuous improvement we have to be honest with ourselves about where we're at and where we're going that means identifying strengths and weaknesses so we can improve after all if we're remaining stagnant how can we scale and build the business and life of our dreams that's where the NACAR Consulting Allied Health Biz Quiz comes in. We're not talking horoscopes and pulse hope here. This questionnaire is the perfect starting point for you to begin identifying your strengths, needs and blind spots as an allied health business owner. The process is simple. Answer the 14 questions and we'll send you a personalised report that includes actionable steps for you to start taking your business to the next level. Ready to take your business into your own hands? Take the NACAR Consulting Allied Health Biz Quiz today. So when you're working with a, an allied health assistant, you're actually working with someone who's more highly trained than, than those people. Um, and they're an expert in community as well, which cannot be uh, understated. understated. Mm. Yep. Uh, so in, in the PhD research that I did, uh, that was one of the key findings was that um, if we want to be able to build sustainable telehealth models, then we need to forget about technology we need to to think about how we build connections in community yeah. and you do that with a co-worker or an allied health assistant whatever someone on site yeah yeah because the clinician has the clinical knowledge but they don't have the knowledge of community and family but that allied health assistant in community does that's what they have so the two sides of the same coin your clinician and your your allied health assistant mm. Um, who who can then make a more productive relationship, uh, and and really when um, when it comes down to it, I think we we're just a little bit protective. I know in speech pathology, very protective of our turf. It's yeah. the turf. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I'm happy to share with people about how I try to support people's communication or meal times. I, I think that's a great thing. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think we can do it well and the literature says we can do it well with allied health assistance. So and my um, position on it when I work clinically is I only know a certain bit of it anyways. <laughs> so mm. I can only bring the best bits that I know that feel um, most relevant and best supported, but I'm not really the expert. I'm not... Yeah, there mm. day in, day out. There's lots of yeah. other perspectives to consider to bring in. And I think collaboration with the right guardrails, what beats that? Mm. That's an interesting point. Yeah. Um, 
again uh, in in some of my PhD case studies when I was talking with people about sort of the the possibility of you know, sort of a a generalist rural con- clinician versus getting support from someone who's really specialised in a particular area from a metro area, you know, getting a support or advice from them, mm. whether through telehealth or FIFO or whatever it is. What they said was basically, ah, uh, look, we, it doesn't need to be perfect. It doesn't need to be specialised. We just want a bit of help. Um, so even if the generalist, you know, isn't, super expert in that particular therapy or can't do that particular therapy because they're not licensed to or they don't, you know, they haven't worked in that area enough. Families are really happy just to get a bit of support. Um, I don't know that, um, I don't know that that's what we should aim for mm. um, necessarily. And it doesn't mean you can't have a bit of both. You know, you can yeah. get in and get started and then bring in a, a different opinion at some point. I think so, Yeah. And I'd love to see something like the Medicare uh, model. Sorry, my dog's snoring in the background. That's um, okay. I just crashed <laughs> my pen on the desk. I think we'll just keep it real. <laughs> um, yeah, Boston says hello. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think we, we should have something like Medicare where, um, you know, you go to the GP and the GP says, oh, I can't help you with that. I'm going to refer you to the neurologist. Uh, then, but Medicare will pay for the neurologist and the GP to have a telehealth consult. You're there with the GP. Um, I reckon we should do that with allied health. Mm, More roundtable collaboration. Yeah. Yeah. The generalist clinician in the bush um, sits, sits in town and, and on, on video with, um, you know, the, the specialist assistive technology person, you know, in Sydney, Melbourne, Mm. Brisbane um, and NDIS pays for it. NDIS You're not asking for much there, Ed. You're just asking for a bit of common sense. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I better wake up to myself. Ah, <laughs> uh, I know that. Um, yeah, that just saves everybody so much time and mixed messaging and could cut to the chase. I suspect. Yeah. 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 Tell us a little uh, more about what else, Sarah, Sarah, Sarah. I don't know what to call it now. What else um, are you guys working on? Uh, yeah, so the the Allied Health Rural Generalist tra- uh, training program is is the big thing. We also have a conference coming up. It's an online conference um, on the fifteenth and sixteenth of November. So twenty twenty two. Yep. Yeah, this year. Um, so only four short weeks away. Um, and the theme is people, purpose, passion, pathways to success. Mm. So, um, Are you pleased with the program? Uh, I'm talking there, so most of it. <laughs> well, that's going to be good. That part. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's going to be great. There's some. Um, I think there's a good mix of sort of your um, your researchy stuff and your your QI projects and your your stories from the field. Um, we like to keep it pretty real at Sarah. Um, we, we know that the realities are that the sort of literature that we read, the sort of training that we have, the case studies we see at uni and in the, in the literature, 
don't really work for us um, usually. Mm. Um, there's so many other considerations that we have that go into stuff. So um, hearing real stories from people who are working in the bush and, uh, you know, even if even if they're horror stories and, you know, you don't get any sort of solution from it. There's um, learnings attached. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, everyone just kind of sits there and listens and goes, yep, I've been there. Uh, so... Uh, Sarah, Sarah conferences, um, uh, really fun events. Um, this year it's online, so we're um, uh, we're we're fully online, and you can you can come from anywhere, um, regardless of postcode. You just need an internet connection um, mm. uh, to be able to join us, and you don't need to be from the bush. You you don't need to work rurally. You just um, anyone who's interested in what it means to to see practice in rural and remote areas, then I'd encourage you to come along. It'll be a be a, a very good time. Is it a day or two days? Uh, two days on the fifteenth and sixteenth. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. Uh, the other wonderful thing, and we were talking about this before I hit record, is the newsletter you guys send out. Yeah. It's been my number one favourite newsletter for many years, and I did confess that I seem to have disappeared off it, or it's disappeared <laughs> out of my system, so I'm going to go and chase that up this afternoon. But the the commentary that you guys provide and the position and representation is amazing, but this newsletter has always been such a good roundup of what's going on in the bush, but also what's going on more generally across the, mm. the sector. So um, kudos to the author or authors. Yeah. Um, Kath Maloney, our CEO, uh, usually is is um, the main person behind uh, Connected, our, our weekly newsletter, and um, go to our website to sign up to it. Um, it is a great read. Mm. Uh, and and she's very proud of it. She she works hard on it because um, everyone named Kath or Kathy is really passionate about what they do. Uh, there you go. <laughs> uh, Kath's really passionate about mm. what she does. She's really passionate about rural and remote Australia. Everyone is at Sarah. That really shows, I think, in um, in everything we do. We are we're a really close knit team. And so I think that shows up in the newsletter where we're, we're talking real stuff. We're talking about, you know, what what is the government doing to support rural and remote people? Um, where is the NDIS going in the next 10 years? Um, oh, gosh, yeah. I want to read that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, really, really important stuff about... Um, uh, what it means in terms of re- real stuff on the ground, um, yep. what that means yep. for our, our communities. Uh, so, yeah, it, our um, our policy director, Alan Groff, is also um, heavily involved in, in writing the newsletter and he's a, he's a policy guru, he's a genius. Mm. He knows how bureaucracy works. Um, I've been on the board for about six years now been working very closely with uh, federal and state government and, and ministers and all that kind of thing and I still have no idea how how they communicate what what they're saying and, you know what what the what the subtext is to all of uh, all of the communications um, but but Alan's like a, an interpreter 
so he could tell me exactly what something means um, when <laughs> when a minister says something uh, or, or when a bureaucrat says something, uh, which is really useful, actually. <laughs> Interpretation. Mm. Can I ask you, where do you think the NDIS is going in the next 10 years? You can take a pause and yeah. chill the Chardonnay. Yeah. <laughs> Getting on to the easy questions now, Cathy. Um, well, who knows? <laughs> who knows? Where is the NDIS going? I, I think the biggest thing that we can change with the NDIS is our attitude towards the letter I in the NDIS. Uh, it's an insurance scheme. And I don't think I've heard anyone say that, you know, as, as well, I don't know if I can say I'm a fan of, of Bill Shorten on a public podcast, but, yeah, I am. I do like Bill Shorten. I do, I, I do mm. like the way he's approaching his mm. ministry now. Um, he's, in, in talking with him, he, um, he understands what rural, rural and remote is and he, uh, he understands what allied health is. And he understands that we are a big part of uh, of a successful NDIS, and a successful NDIS means strong communities and inclusion for everyone. So I'm really heartened by that. Yeah. Um, but I want the government to talk about insurance more. I want them to talk about the fact that this is not an expense. Uh, there is no cost blowout in the NDIS. There is a mm. uh, there's a profit blowout if we put more money into it because people are then able to work more. They're able to get a job. They're able to get an education. They're able to participate in communities. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's it's a no brainer for mine. So um, change the rhetoric around the letter I in NDIS. Uh, if we can do that in the next ten years, I think that's um, that would be. Fantastic. Um, yeah. More practically speaking, um, gee, I, I think um, uh, I think we're maybe. I'm not sure if we will see it, but what we should see is um, a change in the way we train allied health at university. Um, I did one disability subject when I studied at university. And I basically just learned about primitive reflexes and a little oh, bit about cere cerebral palsy and Down syndrome, um, which was completely useless. Um, that I still makes it sound as though it hasn't changed <laughs> since I did it in the 80s. Possibly it hasn't. Yes. So they might have added them. genetics, maybe. <laughs> we, we train people to work in hospitals. We oh, train people in the to work in model. community health. Um, but now... One of the, if not the largest publicly funded um, source of pub, largest public source of public funding for allied health is coming through the NDIS for people with disabilities. Uh, we are not training people for the NDIS. We are not training people for the future of allied health and the future of um, our communities in Australia no, and, I agree. and the public policy that we have in place. Oh, you're getting a round of applause from listeners, Ed. People have <laughs> pulled over and uh, <laughs> so true. This is such a concern along with a frustration for um, business owners and people bringing early career clinicians into their, into their crew. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah, it's really it's a chicken and concerning. egg problem though. Uh, it's a chicken and egg problem because we don't have the academics working in disability to then say to universities, hey, we need more, more of this stuff. Um, I don't know that we have um, the, the capability just yet in some of the disciplines um, to be able to accredit a course like that. Um, you know, does our, do our um, professional peak bodies allow for more disability subjects because, you know, it's maybe at the expense of learning X, Y, Z, uh, which is, you know, traditionally part of accrediting a, you know, an OT, a yeah. physical a speech pathologist. So there's there's some thinking that needs to go into that. Um, but do you wait till it's perfect and signed off or can you kind of get started? I want to get started, yeah, uh, but I'm a pragmatist. What I'm rules? A realist. <laughs> what rules? <laughs> you know, yeah. Surely people. Um, <laughs> ask for forgiveness, yeah. Uh, I... I I'm a big fan of just getting started and doing it. Mm. Um, I um, have a, a role at Western Sydney Uni as as a lecturer in speech pathology and uh, take every opportunity I can to talk about NDIS, to talk about mm. disability, to talk about the realities of clinical practice, to talk about rural and remote, uh, because that that is what I've seen. That's mm. that's the realities of what I've seen. I haven't could have, I, I haven't seen the really polished case studies of um, middle-class kids who have one identifiable issue and, you know, they're going to be fine after six therapy sessions. I've, ne- I've never seen that. Um, mm. you know, I've seen the the tricky stuff. So that's what I want to teach about. And that's that's the stuff that I um, that I find meaningful to, to work with communities about as well. Mm. I wonder what um, undergrad allied health assistance um, professionals would say if they could kind of join in now and sort of say, help, yes, please get me ready for the workforce. And um, I'd love to hear their voice in this because I wonder if it does create tension for them that if they want to work with children and families, it is going to be largely NDIS. And what does that mean and how does my clinical practice fit into that context I don't feel prepared for this mm. um, and some of my colleagues run various courses for you know you know um, you know perhaps therapists wanting to swap and work with kids and families I don't like calling it pediatrics so I'm trying to find all the words around that because it just yeah. shrieks to that medical model but yeah. um, what they're reporting is more and more undergraduates are booking tickets and booking places on these two and three day courses mm because they kind of want something. They want some conceptual understanding, some vocab, some confidence around it so that when they're out selecting where they're going to work in their first job that they've got something to bring. I think that's great. Um, I think that should be part of the university course, though. Mm. Um, that's that's mm. the goal in the future, perhaps. Um, I wouldn't want to talk for, for all these people um, studying and, you know, the, the, the future of, of the professions in in therapy assistants and and, and clinicians, um, but yeah, I, th- I get the I get the sense that they're they're easily influenced by by what they they see sort of in uh, in Facebook a, groups <laughs> in Facebook groups, yeah, <laughs> uh, in in placements in yeah. in their first job out, they just you know. They're, they're they're sponges. They soak up whatever 
we we sort of give them and and if we're giving them this sense of uh you know it's okay to practice with complex disability even if you don't know what you're doing then that's mm. not the right thing i don't think but yeah. at the same time we can't just say oh well we have a huge multi-billion dollar scheme uh in australia now um of which a large chunk of that money is is for allied health to support people with disabilities and say oh no actually we don't have the workforce to do that because we're not trained you know you can count all these allied health professionals as allied health professionals but have they ever worked in disability probably not mm-hmm. until they heard about the ndis that's tricky um that's what okay. i struggle with on a daily basis <laughs> i think well should this person be working with a person with disability yeah effectively probably not but are they going to get anything otherwise it's sort of that um beneficence and non-maleficence mm-hmm. sort of quagmire that you get into ethically speaking and then layer on the context that you work in of rural and remote as well. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, you don't get a choice usually. There might be no allied health professional or there might be yeah. one. Um, yeah. yeah, NDIS comes to town and they say this is market-based system. Well, no, it's not. It's just... Not, no. You know, it's got a little off, way to but, go there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, goodness, goodness, goodness. Um. Is there anything else about Sarah that you'd like people to know? Um, it's free to join for students. That's, okay. Uh, that was a good segue. Cool. <laughs> um, if you are a student or if you know students, encourage them to join. Um, that would be fantastic. Uh, get discounted rates to our conference. Um and I hope you're all going to come to the conference. Yeah, we uh, might. Uh, we'll do our longer. best to bump up production and get this uh, episode out before the conference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll see what we can do. <laughs> that would be great. Uh, I suppose those are the main things. I mean, mm. we, we want to be able to spend more time on advocacy. We want to be able to... Um, uh, to, to be at the table whenever decisions are being made about allied health policy and um, we generally are um, but I think because we are we are a small outfit uh, we and and we represent rural and remote our voice gets lost sometimes so um, opportunities like this to to talk about Sarah and to um, to spread the word is really good so I think if you um, sort of getting back to our our chat at the start about, you know, the connection between city and country. I think even if you you aren't from the bush, never intend on going to the bush, I mean, you... you Hard to miss in Australia. (laughs) (laughs) You you know, that's where your food comes from. That's where all the produce comes from. Uh, That's where a lot of the manufacturing happens. You know, we are are connected and and you need us. So follow us on social media. Um, (laughs) Totally. We'll give all of those links. All of those links. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ed, so good to catch up. Thank you so much for coming in and, uh, yeah, sharing what you're up to now and um, throwing a whole lot more light on Sarah and the Rural Generalist Program and what you guys are, are focusing on. Yeah, no worries. Thanks, Cathy. It's been nice to be here. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode. For the show notes and other resources, our webinar replays, they're all available over on naker.com.au. And if you're loving what you're listening to, please subscribe. We don't want you to miss out on a single thing. And if you want others to get the same benefit that you've had from listening into these episodes, please share this episode and any of the others forward to any of your other allied health business colleagues. And we are totally here for you. Don't forget for a moment that you can jump on in and book that power call and uh, we can see how we can help you get the best of business done. Looking forward to seeing you there.